The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. In Jesus' Bible, the minor prophets, we call them minor only because of their size. Major is a focus on length, as is minor. So these are 12 small books that all fit on a single scroll. And in, in Jesus' Bible, the Jewish Bible, they're actually all referred to together as the book of the 12. Not independent 12 independent volumes, but 12 volumes that have been packaged together to be read together. So, one of the things you may want to do is have your finger on the table of contents in the front of your Bible so that you could write in there which of the prophets historically came first and second. I fail to have a handout today, so I really hope this comes on. Um, for your sake, next week I hope I'll, I'll bring in a chart that you can even put into your Bibles that lays out details. But we're going to look at the minor prophets. And as a survey, um, I have to really go fast. I spent five weeks on the book of Isaiah. I can't spend five weeks on every book of the minor prophets. It, won't no, it will no longer be a survey. Um, and how long, this is my eighth year of teaching this Sunday school class, and when I started eight years ago, we spent a whole year, nine months, walking through the 12 minor prophets. And how many of you were there at that time? A few. I was there. Um, And back then, I was teaching at Northwestern College, I had the chance to teach the Minor Prophets uh, ten times during my time at Northwestern. Were any of you my students in that class? Neither of you? Okay. Um, And during all of those ten times of teaching through these twelve books, um, I just fell in love with them. I started out in 2005 knowing almost nothing, and then I got to grow with these books The prophets are an amazing thing that God gives prophets. It's an age of darkness, and God rather in darkness because the people in Israel are wicked, and instead of wiping them out, God sends them prophets. He sends them a voice of mercy and grace and calls them back into relationship. That's what the 12 guys do. Now, the 12 guys, their messages come at the very end of, of what we call the prophets in Jesus' Bible. Jesus' Bible has the law, the prophets, and the writings. The prophets start with Joshua and end with the book of the Twelve. They're broken to half, the former prophets, the latter prophets. The former prophets are the history books. They're, They're the story that tells the story of death and destruction. The covenant history was sour in the Old Testament. And then we get the latter prophets, which 
after hearing about what happened, we now learn about why it went that way. And these are the guys that were preaching during the history. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve guys. As we look at the twelve, the order that they show up in our Bibles and in Jesus' Bible is over in the left-hand side. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. But what's, what we see right off the bat is that as we assess where they fit into history, it doesn't line up with the order that they show up in our Bible. So Hosea wasn't necessarily the first prophet. Jonah appears to have been in light of where he shows up in the book of 2 Kings. We see that Obadiah and Joel most likely come later, although those are the two minor prophets that are most difficult to date. But there's something greater at work. Something greater at work because chronology is not, what's, is not what is dominating the structure. Instead, they're put in a different order, and we are the ones who have to ask why. We've already seen this in that Isaiah came before Jeremiah, who came before Ezekiel. But in Jesus' Bible, it goes Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and then the twelve. Isaiah is ministering in Judah from 740 to 700. That puts him at the same time as Hosea, the same time as Amos, and the same time as Micah. But Jeremiah came first, and it's because, well, one of the reasons is because all of these commentary books, you've got the story books and you've got the commentary books, the commentary books that are giving comment on the story are all structured Longest book to shortest book. So Jeremiah is the longest book in the prophets, and it goes first. Then Ezekiel, then Isaiah, and then the twelve minor prophets. All twelve of them together are still shorter than Isaiah. But they give us a final picture. They capture for us, really, all the theology of the prophets. So what we're going to do is not take a walkthrough, per se, through all twelve books. We're going to take three weeks and do a topical overview of what they talk about. Now, before we get there, let's notice a few things. Number one, there are pre-exilic and post-exilic prophets. That word exile, it's a word of death, a word of separation. Just like Adam got kicked out of his paradise, Israel got kicked out of paradise. And the common factor between both Adam and Israel was sin against God. Now there were prophets that God sent in to warn Israel of their sin before exile came. Exile was the ultimate curse. He might cause the rain to stop. He might let the enemies come in. 
All of those are curses leading up to the ultimate curse, death. And exile is portrayed all throughout the Old Testament as that, a death. Full separation. Full brokenness from the life that they had before. In the terms of the prophets, the marriage comes to an end between God and his people. And so what it will take, if anything is going to happen afterwards, after exile, it's going to have to be either, in one metaphor, resurrection. Israel is going to have to be resurrected from the dead. Or, the marriage that was before is going to have to be remade. A remarriage to a transformed bride. So pre-exilic prophets, post-exilic prophets. The only post-exilic prophets are Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We call it post-exile, but that's uh, a little tricky because Haggai, Zechariah, they come back in the initial restoration. Cyrus of Persia makes a decree in 538. Okay, you can all go back to your lands. Assyria exiled everyone. Babylon exiled everyone. Babylon had exiled Israel three times. In 605, Daniel and his three friends were taken. In 597, Jehoiakim and Ezekiel were taken. And then in 586, all of Jerusalem was destroyed and the rest of the population except the poorest of the poor were taken. Three specific exiles. But before any of that, in 723, Assyria had come and wiped out the north. They had overcome Samaria, and they too had exiled. But then Persia, Cyrus of Persia, in 539 came to reign, and in 538 he says, you can all return. And we read about that return in the beginning of Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets of that initial restoration. But they get back and nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. They still have enemies all around. Jerusalem is in ruins. The presence of God has not returned. They rebuild the temple in 516. It's finalized, but still the presence of God does not appear to have returned. And where's King David? Where's the Spirit inhabiting them? The valley of dry bones coming to life and being filled with the Spirit of God. Where is that? In fact, at the end of the book, everyone is still struggling with sin. And Ezra, call, Ezra says, we're still in exile. Well, what he really says is, we're slaves in our own land. Ezra and Nehemiah are in the age of Malachi. Malachi is the final prophet of the Old Testament. So you've got the pre-exilic prophets, the post-exilic prophets. Next grouping, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. These are the three main superpowers after Israel was at the top. You open the Bible in Genesis, Egypt is the dominant figure. And that carries us all the way through unto the time of David. In the days of David, there was a power vacuum in the ancient world. Egypt had lost its power, Assyria had not risen, and this is when Solomon's empire, David and Solomon, become the chief superpower in the ancient world. So you've got Egypt, 
Israel, and then after Israel goes down because the kingdom is ripped apart and God moves it down in light of their sin, Assyria rise to the top. You've got three different periods of prophets. Three different groupings. So there's a line right here. You've got the grouping of prophets that are preaching while Assyria is at the top, and that actually informs our reading of the books. When we're reading these books over here, we need to keep in mind that the major enemy is Assyria. You know that Jonah gets sent to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria. Assyria is, the way that they're depicted, is like the Nazis of the ancient world. They expand through massive force and wickedness. And so you want to be a vassal and not an enemy of Assyria. You want to pay them tribute, or else you'll be wiped out. And God says, do not align with anyone. But much of what we read in the Minor Prophets is the tension. Are the kings going to submit to Assyria or to submit to Yahweh? Are they going to trust in God as their ultimate big king to provide and to protect? Or are they going to surrender themselves to the great king, the king of Assyria? Assyria ultimately dwindles in power. And Nahum is the book that is all written for Assyria. The entire book is an oracle against Nineveh. God declaring, you think you're on the top of the world? I'll tell you, I'm going to bring you down. And when I bring you down, all the rest of the world will cheer. Look back at Egypt. Thebes fell, and they were at the top of the world. That should be a sign to you that you too can be brought down. And sure enough, they go down, and uprises Babylon. Babylon the Great. And Babylon becomes a picture, both in light of the original Babylon the Tower of Babel, it's the exact same word in Hebrew, but for whatever reason we translate it, Babel in one text and Babylon in the other. But then it shows up in the book of Revelation as Babylon the Great, the ultimate picture of all that is evil and hostile to God. The pride of the Tower of Babel is very apparent in Babylon the Great. And it's in these days of Babylon that we get the visions of Daniel. For example, the giant statue with the golden head, that's Nebuchadnezzar's Nebuchadnezzar, it's your empire. You are the head of gold. The great superpower of the ancient world that God will bring down by a small pebble growing into a mountain called the kingdom of God. Babylon the Great. During Babylon's age, you've got Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and most likely Joel and Obadiah. These four prophets. And then it's the age of Persia. Now with this, the other thing you need to notice. There are prophets to the north and there are prophets to the south. We have two different kingdoms, right? After Solomon, the kingdoms of Israel get ripped in half. And ten tribes are in the north and two tribes are in the south. God preserves a place in light of his promises to David. There's always a a hope, a messianic hope of the royal deliverer to rise. But then there's this other kingdom in the north. And the capital of that kingdom is Samaria. And God sent three prophets to the north. One of them was a foreign missionary. 
Amos was born in Judah. He was raised as a shepherd in the south. And God said, I want you to go up to your brothers, who are now called Israel. Before the divided kingdom, the whole nation is called Israel. After the divided kingdom, the northern tribes get the name of Israel, and the southern tribes get the name Judah. So to these northern tribes, God sends three prophets. When we hear that, we have to read this book. As much darkness as we read in these prophets... We have to hear their messages as mercy. God is the big king who is establishing his kingdom. And before his day comes, the day when he enters on the scene and everyone sees him face to face, before he shows up as a mighty warrior who will crush all enemies, before he shows up on his day called the day of the Lord, he sends messengers, preachers in front of him. To proclaim the terms of peace. When we read these prophets, many of us don't go here too often. The 12 minor guys are some of the least known figures in all of our Bibles. And part of the reason is because it's not super thrilling reading. You're a sinner and judgment day is coming. Great. But as we hear this, we have to hear mercy. We have to hear about a holy God who always does what is right and is always faithful, not simply to bless, but also to curse. And a God who will not let curse be his final word. In all 12 books, we hear about judgment, but in all 12 books, we hear about blessing, restoration blessing that will come if if you align yourself with the great king and put your hope in his Messiah? Will you turn from your wickedness? Will you run from sin? Will you heed the voice of the prophet calling you back into, I will be your God and you will be my people? Not just a promise, but an expectation. Will you heed it? Will you let your words be true? Will you let your attitude be upright? Will you care rather than hurt? Will you have a gentle and quiet spirit overcoming your rage? Will you nurture humility and crush your arrogance and your self-reliance? Will you put a guard on your eyes and on your mind and on your heart to live in a context of purity? Will you seek the Lord while He can still be found? Will you become a prayer and will you become a Bible reader? Will you approach me the only way that you can through the means of sacrifice? A broken and contrite heart. Will you bestow mercy on the hurting? Or will you turn from all that and continue to live in your arrogance? It may go well for you for a while, but when death comes, as we heard in Psalm 73 this morning, your end will be sure. It's the message of the prophets. God sent three prophets to the north, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. Then he sent three pro- uh, six prophets to the south, 
Micah, during the same days as Isaiah. The two of them are preaching at the same time. In fact, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, are exactly the same as Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Same exact words. And so the question is, well, is one of them borrowing from the other, or is there a a common source? But they're preaching to the same people in the same city at the same time. And their messages complement one another. Habakkuk, how long, O Lord? Everything is going bad here. The wicked surround the just, and it's right in the middle of your city. The very people who are supposed to be heeding your law are not. How long, O Lord? Just wait, Habakkuk. I'm raising up Babylon, and Babylon will come and wipe everyone out. God? Okay, I have a second complaint then. How can you use a much more wicked nation to wipe out those who are more righteous than even them? I'm going to just climb up on the edge of this corner post in the city and I'm going to look out and I'm going to wait for the day of the Lord. Wait for you to make things right. And God says, woe to those who are proud. Woe to those who are self-reliant. Woe to those who put down others in order to lift themselves up. All of them will be crushed. I will come like a mighty warrior. And Habakkuk says... Though the fig tree not blossom, and though the herds in the stall not produce their milk, that's covenant curse. Though this happens and the enemy overcome, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take strength in my God in whom I delight. And the end of Habakkuk says to the choir master, What do I do with that? He sings a song at the end of his book. All of Habakkuk chapter 3 is a psalm. A psalm of hope in light of judgment. And then he says to the choir master, meaning put this in the Bible, because future ages need to sing the same song. They need to hear the same hope. That as the curse is poured out upon the world in light of the darkness and sin, that the remnant would find hope in their God and sing for joy because they are mine. Zephaniah, an amazing summons to ultimate satisfaction. Satisfaction that will only come to those who seek the Lord and wait upon the Lord. A satisfaction that will only come on the other side of judgment. And in that day, the satisfaction will find its culmination, not simply in the redeemed delighting in their God, but in God singing and rejoicing over His own. Joel and Obadiah, amazing books of destruction and judgment. Probably focused right around 586 when the Babylonians overcame the temple. All of those in Judah, all of them anticipating exile. And then, once exile comes and God allows for initial restoration, though not complete restoration until Jesus arrives, God sends three more prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And what their purpose is, first of all, Haggai and Zechariah, their purpose is to say, 
I know you've been anticipating much. You've been anticipating restoration. But I'll tell you, your hearts are not there yet. You're not hoping in your God. Let your eyes look ahead because the the messianic hope of a great deliverer who will overcome evil, it's still alive and well. Don't let that hope dim. Keep your eyes focused on the ultimate priest and the ultimate king that God has said he will raise up on the last day. In a single day, he will put away all wickedness. In a single day, all enemies will be crushed. In a single day, you will be restored. And then Malachi comes in at the end, amazingly. It's a book all about the glory of God. You give the governor honor, but you don't give me honor, says God. And it ends... Our English Bibles end here. This is the last prophetic voice of our Bible. It ends in a, in a great theme of darkness. Judgment day is coming. There is hope for some. I will bring a new Elijah who will point to the new Moses. That's how Malachi ends. It calls people to remember the words of Moses. And I tell you, a new Elijah is coming. And when he arrives, he will point to the greater Moses the prophet like Moses that they've been anticipating since the end of Deuteronomy. That's how, the, how Malachi ends. But the whole book is about a people who don't have their walk right with God. Still, after all the history, the prophets will come to an end in darkness. Now that's the history side. But now we look over here on the left, and this is how they show up in our Bibles. There's six prophets right off the bat. All of these prophets, if you read their books, they don't focus heavily on judgment or heavily on restoration. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah focus principally on sin. The sin problem which shapes the the very foundation for why judgment is coming. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, all of these are principally focused on judgment. And Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are are the three books of the twelve minor prophets that are focused principally on the hope of restoration. Sin, judgment, restoration. Those three themes show up in all twelve of the books. But their dominant thrust is, as I have them laid out here, Or we could see it this way. Initially, notice Hosea is to Israel, Joel is to Judah, Amos is to Israel, Obadiah is to Judah, Jonah is to Israel, Micah is to Judah. Whoever put the twelve together, I think it was most likely Malachi himself, when he put them together, he wanted his reader to hear a one-two punch. The prophets to Israel, the prophets to Judah, the prophets to Israel, the prophets to Judah. He's wanting them to get a sense that while the kingdom was divided, the prophetic voice was one. One God calling them back to a unified people. And then after Israel was wiped out in 723, three more prophets came to Judah. And then after the restoration, the initial restoration three more prophets came to Judah, but no longer considered the southern kingdom, considered the only kingdom, and it's the birth, it's the start, 
They've returned to their land, and it's now that they're back in the land that they can expect one from Bethlehem to come and rise and ultimately be the ruler of all. So, just looking here, this is one unified book. And two weeks from now, or sorry, the third time we do this, I'm going to bring in a sheet that what I've tried to do is summarize the flow of thought through the 12 minor prophets. If you were to read them, not as individual books, but as one whole book with 12 chapters, what would you get? What would the message be if you move from Hosea to Malachi? It carries you somewhere. It lifts you up and brings you through. If you don't just look at the trees, but look at the forest. You can see something that you would likely miss if all you're doing is hopping in and reading one book at a time. So we're going to consider that, the whole book perspective. Now we move to the book of Haggai. I mean, Hosea. As we gear up to dive into the text... I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, you've reminded me today of your amazing love. For those who have eyes to see, it is unrelenting. Your presence is always with us. Through the water, through the flame. ever with us, always, even to the end of the age. Yet how dark, how hot, how much it can seem like we're drowning. And we need you to remind us that you are the firm foundation upon which we stand. I pray that this morning your word would penetrate into our souls and give us life and hope and help. In Christ I pray. Amen. It's a good question. I mean, good, good topic to raise. The idea of the corporate, the unified people of God upon whom the covenant curses come, and how individual salvation fits into the mix. How does the remnant grow out of the group? The old, the 12 minor prophets focus substantially on the hope of a remnant arising from the group. And that remnant will be set apart from the majority by faith. And they also suffer with the group. But the suffering is, although their identity is with that group, if you look at Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9, three of the greatest prayers in all the Bible. The entire chapters are dominated by a prayer. Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. All three of those prayers, the prayer, already named, is pleading with God in the midst of exile on behalf of the community, saying, God, restore us. And all three of them identify themselves with the sins of the rest of the group. It's not, I am righteous, they're wicked, I'm praying for the wicked. No, we are wicked. We're in need of desperate grace. 
So there is a, a communal element to the curses. And if we look at the elect as a whole, we would say there's also a communal element to the blessings. But the identification of the, of the elect in the new covenant is all based on faith in the person of Christ. And that's an individual reality. That the sheep are separated from the goats only in the context of faith. Yet that doesn't stop the fact that a people who are living under the old covenant, like Daniel, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, they all have to experience the same curses as the rest of the group. But those curses become disciplinary rather than punitive. They're not final for them. And this was set forth all the way back in Leviticus 26, when Moses said, the covenant curses are this, if you fail to obey my voice, then I will bring curse upon you. And then it says, and if you will not repent, I'll bring more curse upon you. And if you will not repent, I'll bring more discipline upon you. And that's the amazing word that he uses, discipline. The curses are called discipline. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, experiencing the judgment of God, the brokenness of this world, living through the curse, if you, in the midst of suffering, can turn to God with eyes to see Him as the only source for help, all of a sudden your experience of the curse becomes a blessing in disguise. It becomes the agent of moving you to greater humility, and God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So the majority are experiencing the curse in the Old Covenant. In the same way that we as believers identified with Jesus are called upon to carry our cross daily. Before Jesus received his resurrection body, he had to go through the cross. And now we as the body of Christ carry the same cross. We experience the suffering at the hand of God. And yet Hebrews chapter 12 says, the way we need to think about it is of a father disciplining his son for his own good. The cancer we experience is biologically the same cancer that the non-believer would experience. The car accident that we endure is the exact same car accident that the non-believer would endure. But what is happening in the spiritual realm is very different. For one, it is crushing the soul and moving them farther away from God. And for the other, it is humbling the soul and moving them to greater dependence on God. The same external reality is being experienced, and yet faith is being birthed out of one and greater hostility against God is being birthed out of the other. Whether the curse will be a blessing in disguise and truly be viewed as discipline, or whether the curse will be judgment that will result in the grave and ultimately hell. So we'll, I'll try to keep that in mind and ponder more as we walk through the twelve. We begin in Hosea, the word of the Lord. That just signals he's a prophet, a real deal prophet. He stands in the counsel of God, receiving a word from God. This word came to Hosea 
In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This is how the minor prophets open. It opens with an amazing commandment for a prophet to embody in his own life a picture of what's happening on the corporate national scale. Hosea will be a picture of God's love. Unrestrained, unrelenting. Entering into darkness and marrying a bride who is blemished through and through. She's called a woman or a wife of whoredom. A prostitute. And I want you to marry this prostitute whose life has been scathed with brokenness and with abuse and with a low view of sexuality. I want you to enter into that mess because, it says, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea is a groom who is, all of a sudden, as a prophet, going to embody in his life, and not only in his words, his words aren't going to be the only message. His very life is going to be a message. It's going to be a divine drama being played out before all the people that's supposed to teach them something. Just as the land is in whoredom, so your bride will be a a whore. God has loved His people. That's how Jeremiah 31, 31 opened up. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with Their fathers, when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, the covenant that they broke, even though I was a husband to them. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32. I'll make a new covenant, and it won't be like that covenant that I made with their fathers, who were my bride. I was their husband, yet they broke the covenant. They were unfaithful to me. Hosea, go marry a girl like that who will not be faithful to you. The minor prophets open up with this image, this metaphor of marriage. With God as the great husband who is working to have a a faithful, beautiful intimate relationship with his bride. The relationship that started back in the Garden of Eden that will find consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb, right in the middle of it is not a pretty picture. It's the picture of lack of faithfulness, of lack of love. Even though so much has been given A rejection of all that has been given. 
That's how they start out. Then we see the end. Malachi is the final one of these books. How does Malachi open? Here's what it says. I have loved you, declares the Lord. But you say, how have you loved me? There's a frame that's happening in the Minor Prophets. They open up with the love story. They end with the love story. God calling His people to recognize how deeply, how impassioned He is for them. Do you feel like you have a God who is impassioned for you? A God who loves you. The minor prophets open declaring, you're the one that I love. You're the people that I've redeemed. And yet you've run from me. What does this say? First off, sin is not simply a violation of a norm. Sin is the desecration of the ultimate relationship. How weighty do you perceive your sin? Do you put it simply into check off, did I do it or didn't I? Or do you put it into relational terms where you feel it like you've offended a spouse, deeply wounded through unfaithfulness? Sin is not just idolatry, it's adultery. And the prophet is wanting, he's he's shaping this relationship that we have with God in these kind of terms in order to try to help it reach parts of the heart, parts of the mind that we don't often open up when we're thinking about our walk with God. And yet this is the depth of the intimacy. Here's how it's worded in Hosea 2.13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. When you run after pornography, adultery is at stake. Not just between you and your spouse, between you and your God. When you let bitterness fester in the soul, I know right, God says, do not respond evil with evil, but rather seek to do good to to one another and to everyone. One another being shorthand for those in the body of Christ, all the one another's, and to everyone means we're doing good even beyond the body of Christ, to everyone. Don't respond evil for evil, but respond to evil with good, says Paul in Romans 12, because vengeance is mine, I will repay. Will you trust the promise of God or will you retain bitterness? And in doing so, you're saying, my way is best. And in saying that my way is best by retaining bitterness rather than God's way, it's adultery. It's unfaithfulness. It's, in the words of Hosea, forgetfulness. 
Now turn with me just over to Hosea chapter 4. The book opens with a story, a parable, this parable that was really lived out in the life of Hosea and his marriage to Gomer. And it works its way out for us, it unpacks it for us, um, not just leaving it in the realm of Hosea and Gomer, but, but actually the commentary, the way that it explains what the relationship is, it actually brings it right home and says, Yahweh is the husband, Israel is the bride, and here's what they've done. They've forgotten me. And then after you get to chapter 3, the story comes to an end. The parable is over. You no longer hear about Hosea and his wife anymore. And then you get chapters 4 through 14 that are all focused on just Israel and God. And it unpacks for us the nature of their forgetfulness. It puts it into three categories. Here they are. Chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That word for controversy is the word, it could have translated it this way, a lawsuit. He has a covenant lawsuit. And in chapter 2, verse 2, it uses exactly the same word, plead with your mother, plead. That word is the exact same word, but it's now in the verbal form rather than in the noun form. Plead with your, father, with your mother. That is, take part in the covenant lawsuit against your mother. What God does in this text is He's going to bring, Hosea is ultimately going to have to bring Gomer to court, and He's going to divorce her. And God is going to divorce His bride in chapter 2. The old covenant is going to come definitively to an end. That's what God declares. The relationship that he established will be over. Why? Because they've forgotten me. They've been adulterous. Or, here's how he describes it. Here's the nature of the lawsuit. Chapter 4, verse 1. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God. Instead, what we see is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed flows upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. Three things, no knowledge, no steadfast love, no faithfulness. And this becomes the structure of the rest of the book. Now, I could go into this and unpack it, but if you see Hosea 4, 4 through 6, 3, it focuses on their lack of knowledge. It takes each of these in reverse order. 6, 4 through 11, 11 focuses on their lack of love, which is the same, it's the word for chesed. It's the word, Hebrew word chesed, which sometimes is also translated covenant loyalty. There's no commitment here, no lastingness. And then finally, there's no faithfulness. That is, there's no stability, no standard, there's no truth. And this shapes the rest of the book, all the way down to chapter 14, verse 8. Before verse 9 says, if you're wise, reader, you'll heed what this book is about. You'll get it down into your soul, that you have a God who loves you. And who recognizes he's not blind to your lack of knowledge. He's not blind to your lack of faithfulness. He's not blind to your lack of covenant loyalty. He sees it. 
Will you respond in humility and brokenness? Or will you, will you return to Him? Or will you continue to be hostile? Here's how it plays itself out in Hosea's life. Turn with me back to Hosea chapter 1. So the Lord says, Mary, a woman of whoredom and have children of whoredom. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore a son. First son comes, his name is Jezreel. Jezreel. It means God scatters. So this boy gets the name God scatters. Specifically, it's of seed and a hand, and it's, it's scattered. Or it's of an army that when someone shows up, the enemy flees. And in the context, it seems to be focused on the latter. It's an image of judgment. The son's name is an image of judgment. Now the irony is that just a few years before, Ahab's empire came to an end. Ahab was the chief northern king who thought he had it forever. And one named Jehu came in the place of Jezreel, the city, this is the name of a city in northern Israel. And at Jezreel, he scattered and destroyed the kingdom of Ahab. And now, it's Jehu's dynasty, specifically under the reign of Jeroboam II, Jehu's dynasty, that God is declaring judgment against. So just like Jehu had scattered Ahab, God's declaring, I'm going to scatter you. But there's this boy who's got to bear the weight. Every time he goes to school, God scatters, God scatters, God scatters. Then, who else is there? She conceived again, verse 6, and she bears a daughter. Here's what I want you to call the girl. No compassion. No mercy. Lo ruchamah. This doesn't help nurture a stable view of oneself. All your girlfriends are saying, no mercy, come on over and play. Who are you going out with this weekend? No compassion. <laughs> She's bearing the judgment of God in her own identity. And as she goes and plays every day, and the world is getting to know Hosea and his ministry, they're saying, why did he do this? He named his daughter and cursed her destiny. And every time she runs out into the street to play and pick up a ball, the neighbor is supposed to be reminded, that's me. God has declared He will not have compassion on me because my heart is cold. There's one more. She conceived again, bore no mercy, and then the Lord said, oh, verse 8, she once she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and she calls him, Lo, Ami, not my people. And if you have read the Bible, if you frequented yourself, not my people should just ring bells in your head. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's the covenant formula. This, this intimate 
phrase that binds up relationship, and God says, no more, not my people, not my people. The prophet is living out his message because Israel's forgotten him. Oh, others might think that they're covenantally loyal, but God knows what goes on in the closet. He knows what goes on in the cubicle. He knows what goes on in the shower. When no one else is there, no faithfulness, no truth, no loyalty. And because of that, no mercy, not my people. So what does he do? Look at chapter 2. We never actually read of the divorce of Gomer and Hosea. It's implied when we get to chapter 3. What instead we read about is the divorce of God and Israel. Sin, sin, sin. Verse 5. Their mother has played the whore, the children of Israel's mother. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water. She thought that her idolatry was securing for her all of her provision. Therefore, what does God say? I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Because of her sin, therefore, there will be entrapment. Therefore, there will be lack of guidance. Therefore, there will be abandonment. Verse 8, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, that it was I who gave her the wine, that it was I who gave her the oil. Therefore, verse 9, So there's a therefore in verse 6, a therefore in verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. Judgment is real. So what does God say? Because of sin, therefore, lack of provision. Therefore, public shame, helplessness, misery, waste. God is the husband who's had an unfaithful bride and he's now taken her to court. This old covenant relationship that we've had has been characterized by your unfaithfulness. And because of that, it will result in your ruin. Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, and all of a sudden, everything changes. Therefore, in verse 6, punishment. Therefore, in verse 9, punishment. Therefore, she sinned against me. Therefore, this doesn't make sense. Behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. and And there she shall answer in the days of her youth as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and I will make for them a covenant. 
On that day with the beasts of the field, it's a new creational covenant. The birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. The very things you were not to me, I will once again be to you. The relationship has come to an end, but I'm going to do something new. And it's going to be with the same bride who's now been transformed. This is the message of the prophets. The final word is not judgment ever. But this experience is only for those who run from sin, take seriously the holiness of God, and trust in in Him as their Savior. Renewed courtship and hope. Restoration of marriage, including a complete rejection of past sin. A new creation covenant. Global peace and security. Eternality of relationship. True knowledge of God is righteous, just, covenantally loyal, merciful and faithful. And a renewal of the covenant triangle. Just look and see what happens in 21 through 23. In that day I will declare, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. That was the name of the first son. But God will enter in, and the very people who were scattered as enemies of God, God will make the heavens talk to the grain. They will talk to the crops. And all of a sudden, where there was scattering of an enemy, now Jezreel is flipped on its head and it's used for sowing. And there will be great bounty. Jezreel will be the name, but it will mean something new. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. Notice no mercy is capitalized. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now what's amazing in the Minor Prophets as we close? Well, let me read this and then I'll, then I'll close. Hosea 11, 8 through 9, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. So here's the amazing challenge. I open the class by showing how Malachi begins. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved me? Hosea is one of the earliest prophets. Malachi is is the last of the prophets. And yet, starting out with Hosea, the readers didn't get it. So that they move all the way through their history. Samaria falls to Assyria. Jerusalem falls to Babylon. Cyrus calls them back and they raise up Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt. And still, all the way after all of that, how has God loved us? 
All the times that he could have totally destroyed them, but he preserved them. All the times that he could have left them blind in their sin, but he caught them and sent them a prophet or a parent or a pastor who called them on their sin and said, you are running from God and I see it. That's mercy. But Israel at the end of their history is saying, how has God loved us? And may we as a people not be so blind. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How much love? How much love? We're supposed to get this when we read the prophets. We're supposed to reflect on the love of God. You find yourself in anxiety. God says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Pause and reflect on the love of God and let your thanksgiving rise. And as it does, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You are loved today. God loves you today. In spite of all that you are, while you were still a sinner, He sent Jesus. He loves you today. Run from your sin. Cling to the one whose arms are open. This is the message of the prophets. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd go with these brothers and sisters. May they feel your love. Know your nearness. May they recognize your holiness and the seriousness with which you take sin. And may they in forgiveness cast all of their sins upon the cross, knowing that you care for them. May they trust you and never be the same. Help us. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.